I'm Matt Booker. I'm Dave Laird. And this is Christian Tabordo. So join me in the great concavity for a long interview with a hideous man. Is that is that you, me, Matt, or Wallace Christian? We'll let him pick. <laughs> yeah, like like all good fiction, uh, it's up to the reader to uh, do with it what they will, interpretation-wise, I guess. <laughs> awesome. Well, welcome to the show, Christian. This is episode 55 of The Great Concavity, and we're very excited to have you with us. Um, you've kind of come to us through like a long line of recommendations from Kyle Beachy, who was a guest, like I don't know, 10 or 12 episodes ago now. Um, uh-huh. So Kyle just keeps bringing the hits for us. Um, nice <laughs> kyle's a colleague he's a great dude yeah so he put us on to your book tough lahoma which is your second most recent book mm-hmm. and rescue press uh sent us copies of that so matt and i both had a chance to read that uh, last nice. year and then you are also the author of, the, of a more recent short story collection called ghost engine which we talked about with adam levin a couple episodes ago and he sung its praises uh and his wife camille bordas has sung its praises right even on the cover uh, with an endorsement so we thought all right let's let's get copies of ghost engine let's read it and then let's get christian on the show finally so here we oh. are thanks for coming by nice well it's a pleasure to be here awesome man. and and no and normally you're in chicago right you teach uh well where do you teach now i should i should ask or where did you teach in the past uh, i teach in the mfa program at Ro- roosevelt university in chicago same mm-hmm. with kyle that's where kyle is too right? right yeah yeah hence your familiarity and friendship or did you guys know each yep. other before working together? Well, actually, we we vaguely knew each other before, and oh, it's yeah. it's very strange actually because uh, I emailed him out of the blue um, a few years before I got the job uh, based on an, a review that he'd written of uh, the Pale King. Really? Oh yeah, um, and we had a long email chain about empathy, mm-hmm. and uh, he recognized my name when I applied for the job because uh, we 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 wrote a lot of words, but we didn't agree on anything. <laughs> <laughs> he did say that you have an interesting take on Wallace. And and I mentioned that to Adam when we talked to him or in the emails with Adam Levin. And he said, yeah, that's true. Ask him about it. So, uh, <laughs> but I don't know what your take is quite yet. Um, I've seen you mention him a couple of times in interviews, but um, mm-hmm. here we are to obviously explore that a little bit more. And of course, talk about your own writing too. Sure. And I mentioned that you're, or I asked if, where you teach in Chicago, because at the beginning of the call before we started recording here, you mentioned you were quarantining in New York. So we always mm-hmm. want to, I, I kind of want to ask, like, what has that been like? Um, what's mm-hmm. what's yeah. your kind of COVID-19 ex- story been so far? <laughs> mm. I have like a, it's like a tale of two pandemics for me because in, uh, as the director of the program, I had a lot of like stuff to stuff to do when we first went online, like just, mm-hmm. just making sure that we could all, you know, arrange things and, Um, but then, so I, I finished out my semester in Chicago, but we have a, we live in like a 700 square foot, two bedroom apartment. And I have a nine year old, um, who's still going, or as of last week was still going to school online. So when my semester ended, we came over here and it's, uh, I was telling Dave, the, the restrictions in New York are actually more strict than they are in, in Illinois. But the, um, the fact that we lived in such a tiny little apartment kind of uh, got in the way of things. And so we have a little more room to spread out in my dad's house and there's a backyard and stuff. So. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's nice. Um, yeah. Still going to school. That's 
That's pretty brutal, man. It's like late late <laughs> June when we're recording this. It's like almost July. But uh, yeah, and it's mm-hmm. yeah. That's a long time. I mean, was, my my kids have been out since like, like a month from online school. Oh and, wow! Um, and now the question is like, what's it going to be like when they go back? You know, in like right. mid August, yeah. and a lot uh-huh. of a lot of parents are already like, we're just going to homeschool. Um, yeah. So I think it's seriously upending the kids lives you know yeah yeah i mean like things got real dreadful and like philosophical and when we, particularly when we were crammed into the little apartment in chicago we spent a lot of time talking about the meaning of life and stuff like that it's, <laughs> it's a lot to put on a little nine-year-old uh yeah yeah i'll bet and i mean re- like recent events in the last month specifically have like really escalated that conversation too in so many different ways absolutely but, yeah during during all this quarantine stuff too so it's been a a pretty remarkable like dizzying time in human history here (laughs) sure has (laughs) yeah yep and uh one thing that's been on my mind today is like just the different realities like of dave and i like i'm in texas where shit is terrible covid wise and um police wise as well but um, mm-hmm. Dave's in New Zealand where they've basically defeated COVID like a month ago. Uh-huh. And Dave's uh-huh. like, yeah, I went to the bar and I'm like, they just closed all the <laughs> bars again, uh, the oh, other really? day. So, uh, it's, it's pretty stark contrast. I feel like, yeah, I feel, I feel like quite bad talking to anybody from North America right now about like what my life is like here in New Zealand. Like <laughs> I don't want to like be a jerk by saying that. Yeah, like I went out for drinks with somebody the other night and talked about Wallace for three hours, you know? Like, <laughs> yeah. So now now that we've got that out of the way, Christian, my, some of my questions for you, <laughs> now that we've just checked that off, because uh, I am curious, you know, and like our last episode, yeah. we talked to Martina, who was in Italy, and like, yeah. I was just really curious, like, what's that been like for you? And like, everyone's mm. kind of got a different story about it. And sure, there's yeah. a lot. You know, I feel like it would be remiss not to acknowledge the context in which we're having this conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no, absolutely. But what I was going to say is like, you know, asking about where you are is like, I, I want to kind of start with like, how did you get here? Where did you grow up? Like, what's your background? And, you know, eventually let's start with that. Cause then I have other questions that stem from that, but like, you know, what, where did you grow up? What what made you want to be a writer? Sort of what's your background? Okay. Um, I grew up uh, about a mile from where I am right now, actually, uh, in the uh-huh. town of Cohoes, New York. Um, I, I, I've thought a lot about when I realized that I wanted to be a writer, but I don't think that there's a very, very solid answer. Uh, both of my parents were Presbyterian ministers, uh-huh. and so they wrote sermons every week. And so I know about the practice of writing and the Mm -hmm. practice of sticking to deadlines. Um, And so uh, I also, you know, was kind of pushed to memorize large swaths of the Bible and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So my relation to text has been since I was, you know, basically an infant, but uh, I never really started seriously writing until high school. I didn't even like reading books, honestly. And uh, stumbled on Vonnegut in high school and then uh, Barry <laughs> Hannah shortly after that and uh, knew that that was what I wanted to do. Uh, I went to Bard College to oh, yeah. study whatever. Um, 
they don't really have majors there, but you would have probably called me a literature major. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was really, really lucky to study with just awesome writers and editors while I was there. And, Can you name a couple of the I, writers? Who was the writers that were there when you were there? Well, my first workshop professor was John Ashbery, the poet. Holy shit. Oh, wow. and, yeah, <laughs> and I was doing a, a lot of poetry. Um, and Ashbery was just such a pleasure to be around and so much fun to listen to. Um, but what happened was I would listen to him and I would realize that I still didn't know how to get better at it as a poet. So I actually started writing prose because I could actually tell when I was doing something wrong. You know, I would hand <laughs> in a poem to Ashbery and one week he would say, this is great. And the next he would say, I don't think it's quite there. Um, and he would talk about it, but I couldn't understand the difference between the two. Whereas with fiction, it's fairly easy for me to see the difference. Hmm. Um, I also studied uh, with uh, Bradford Morrow, who is the editor of Conjunctions, oh, on yeah. top of being a writer himself. Oh, yeah. And uh, he, he introduced me to basically, you know, a, a lot of the writers that I still think of as my favorite writers today. Hmm. Um, He's a big so Wallace a, fan. Uh, I mean, he, pub- he published Wallace in Conjunction several times. And, uh, they, yeah. They had yeah. quite and, a correspondence. Yeah, he was actually uh, where I first learned of Wallace. I was in Bard from 95 to 99. And uh, I remember when Infinite Jest came out, uh, hearing of the hype around that book (laughs) and just asking Brad um, if he knew about the guy. And he was like, actually, I'm pretty close with him. Um, I think my follow-up question was, uh, does he really wear the bandana? uh, Yeah. So, yeah, it was, was, you know, he, he, he brought... Uh, all kinds of you know some of my favorite writers to campus and it was a it was a bard was just a wonderful experience so Hmm. that's um, you know i think we were the exact same age because that's the same years i was an undergrad and i also have a nine-year-old as well um wow which is crazy (laughs) he turns 10 in september but um uh, one connection i i think about with bard colleges i went to university of denver for undergrad and like you look Mm -hmm. at your professor's like pedigree you know you're like who did they study with and where did they get their degrees right and Mm -hmm. i remember i studied with the writer ricky ducournay and she was at denver at the time and ricky like she was a tenured professor at du and her highest degree was a ba from bard college (laughs) <laughs> and it was just hilarious like all these other you know like denver is one of the few schools that offers phd in creative writing and it was like every single other professor like in the whole school had a phd except ricky it's like ricky just a ba and she's a tenured professor and i always thought like wow that's really cool like maybe you could just go to bard college and get a ba and get, get tenure <laughs> She was uh, there. The rumor was always that she was the subject of uh, the Steely Dan song too. Ricky, don't lose that number. <laughs> you know what? I had heard that, and I, I actually don't know how true that is. Yeah, I don't. I don't either. <laughs> I don't know how true that is. But, Legend. <laughs> um, there's a lot, there's a lot of stories about Ricky actually. Um, <laughs> so after that, you did get an MFA. I assume you wanted to. Mm-hmm. At that point, you're like, okay, I'm going to keep doing this, right? Yeah, I actually took some time off. Uh, I uh, I graduated kind of young, and I wanted to explore the world, and I um, fell in love with a woman who I am now married to have, and have been for 17 years, and she's from down south, so we spent a year oh, in cool. North Carolina. Oh, yeah. And um, turned out that we didn't 
didn't like living in North Carolina as much as we thought we did. Um, so about midway through, I decided I was going to apply to grad school, and I got into Syracuse. Oh, really? And, uh, wow. Yeah. Cool. And spent three years there, which yeah. is where I met, you know, half the people I'm still friends with. So. Did you work with George Saunders there closely as well? Yeah. Like Adam did? Yep. Oh, cool. Yeah, I mean, I didn't work as closely with George as Adam did because uh, my thesis advisor was Gary Lutz. Okay, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, we had a lot of great faculty there. Oh, cool. I was just thinking, like, reading through Ghost Engine that, like, I think you and George are pretty kindred spirits in the kinds of themes that you're writing about, like a lot of kind of, like, utopia or dystopian uh, capitalist uh, con- consumer culture gone crazy stuff mm-hmm. seems to, like, factor into, into some of your stories in this collection um and that you two probably would have a pretty pretty fun time having a beer together yeah george george is just the the loveliest person that i know um, <laughs> you know he's you know I, I i lucked out in having a great father but like he's he's like a father figure to to a lot of people like a lot of students you know what i mean Cause yeah he's, he's wise and funny and understanding and you just feel like a better person when you're around him you know yeah um, oddly as a as uh a, a student writer, I actually butted heads with him a lot. And it, it was my fault. I was a <laughs> young punk and I wanted to write mean stuff. And um, right. George is this very open hearted, tender person. And totally. I think you notice this, like his stories end differently than mine. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like we both, we both focus on the ugliness and things. And then he finds some moment of redemption usually at the end. Whereas I say, totally. no, it just stays ugly. You know? <laughs> so you're like Presbyterian background, um, <laughs> you know, either went pretty far in the Calvinist direction so as to land you at some of those endings or like you've just rejected it completely. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, no, I think, I think there's, uh, there is no doubt. There's n- no taking the Calvinist out of me. I read too much Kierkegaard too young. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know uh, nice. but now that you say that you studied with Gary Lutz, like I see a lot more of that in your writing, like at least at the sentence level. And like, mm-hmm. I am super interested in like what, cause his stories or his work in general at the craft level just seems very unique. Right. And that he's, Mm -hmm. he's doing something no one else is doing. And I, I feel like that a lot about uh, your work and especially the way that you um, published things. And, you know, you're not, you kind of say this in one of the stories or a character called you <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, says this in one of the stories, but it's like, you're not aiming to be that New York times bestseller, like write some popular, mm-hmm. you know, feel good story. You're writing with a different aim in mind. And I feel like Gary's probably, I mean, Gary Lutz. I don't know him. I can't call him Gary, but like, um, eh, okay. <laughs> um, but he, I feel like he's doing something similar to that project. You like, there's no way he could, he would approach something to be like, this is going to be a popular bestseller. He was, Oh, go ahead. No, no, please do go ahead. Uh, I mean, he was, it was funny. Cause I actually, it's very strange. Cause aesthetically, I actually saw a continuum between him and John Ashbery. Mm-hmm. Um, they were, they were very different people, but I, their attention to language and their kind of the, the movements of their minds on the page actually kind of reminded me of, um, I saw a similarity there and it was, I mean, working with Gary was hilarious because, um, you know, none of the workshop cliches ever, you know, worked with Gary, you know, he, right. he, he was like, I'm not going to talk to you about the plot of this novel, which be, be, became my first novel. He was like, I don't even do plot. And so he would do these, like he would, he would do like intense copy edits 
Um, but then he would also do uh, really weird exegesis on strange decisions I had made. Like he was like, <laughs> one time he was like, I noticed that there's a character named Vinny Domino. And immediately I thought, that's Latin, Veni Domine, meaning come Lord. And I was like, holy shit, you're right. You know, <laughs> he was like, I also did some research and I found that there was a Norwegian Christian metal band in the early nineties by that name. And I was like, you, you oh just, you read my mind by looking at two words on a page. Uh, <laughs> wow. Cause there is a Norwegian metal band in this book, Ghost Engine. Yes. Which is <laughs> one, one of my, my favorite one of my stories. Great themes. Oh my gosh. Uh, that's why I mean, and that that kind of uh, attention to individual words. I mean, that's something I wanted to ask you about, like when putting together a book of stories like this, like how much do you put into like, you know, what is the first line of the book? What is the last line? What is the, you know, the order of the stories? Like, how, how much do you put stock into that stuff? Huh. Well, I would say on a on a on a meta level, like a whole volume, I, I put almost no effort into it. Um, <laughs> I had be, like until the day I sent the book out to the to the publisher that eventually took it, I had been planning on an entirely different order. That was, um, I was just trying to create a certain symmetry, and I showed the manuscript to Adam Levin, um, who read it and was like great stories the order sucks and he told me what order to put them in and i put them in the order and i sent it out that sounds um, so like I, the way adam would say that yeah. having talked to him a little bit like he's just pretty like says it like it is kind of guy yeah he's he's my go-to on that um but then on the on the level of the story itself for me it's uh i once i have the first line the entire process is fun for me mm. um but if I don't start out with a first line, it can take me a really, really, really long time to get the story going. Mm. Um, the the example of that is that is that whose bridesmaid story, the the metal story, mm-hmm. um, because that was assigned. There there used to be this event in Chicago called the Dollar Store Show, mm-hmm. um, where the the people who threw it would email you a, like a piece of junk from the dollar store, <laughs> and mine was like a like a sticker with rhinestones spelling out bridesmaid. And I was like, well, clearly this is a decal of a Christian metal band that black metal bands love. You know what I mean? Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, which sounded like something to write about, but then and that uh, was it your took whole me... premise for that story. Yeah. That was the entire birth of the premise, but Amazing. you get the, the, the constraint on that event. The dollar store show was that you had one month to come up with the entire story. And I think I found the first line on the, you know, three days before it was after that, it was easy to write. It was just, I had to find a line, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, John Updike said something similar when he, right. I mean, I hate to be bringing up John Updike, but he does say something similar about writing and that if he doesn't really revise many stories as wholly, at least, I mean, he always tweaks with them, but he said, um, if a story doesn't pour smooth from the beginning, it probably never will. Um, yep. And that sounds a lot like what you're saying. Um, so the, the order of the stories, I should back up and mention for people who are listening and have not read this book, uh, which they all should now go out and buy the book Ghost Engine. Um, there are 16 stories in the book, and they're, I would say, linked stories in some way, or there are links across stories. There are There's some least, recurring vignettes, for sure. There are four stories that are um, these characters, Frag and Watt, who are building, mm-hmm. trying to build a ghost engine or trying to get the ghost engine to work. 
Um, yeah. And then some other links, some other recurring characters like the Ultimate Warrior. And, yes. Uh, Man, Christian, you sent me into like a serious nosedive of like internet research on the Ultimate Warrior <laughs> after reading this, which was great, by the way. Like really brought me back to my childhood watching WWF wrestling in the 80s. <laughs> I mean, I grew up in Texas, so I was a wrestling fan. So I already yeah, had, yeah, had done all the research. You know. Sure, yeah. I'm sorry. Um, and then the the one of the longest stories in the book, Gordon Gartrell explains the difference. Um, Gartrell shows up kind of in that whose bridesmaids whose bridesmaid story, anyways. Um, mm-hmm. And so I want to ask you about that that sort of linking. Let's go back to the the frag and what because I think this is kind of one of the the cores of the book. Um, these are mm-hmm. two guys, and like when I first saw Watt, I thought Beckett, right? Um, uh-huh. But then I'm like Fragonard. I'm like fuck, isn't that like a painter, right? It's like, it's like mm-hmm. this old timey French painter, right? And so then I looked it up. And I was like, well, there's this other painter of the same era, Watteau, right? So I assume it's like Fragonard and Watteau because you put that in the dedication, right? Watteau. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, well, th- these guys, like, what is what is the connection here? And now that you're talking about Gary Lutz, Lutz, I really see like, you know, a lot of this is metaphor to get at something kind of indirectly or obliquely. And it's just kind of like, I don't want you to spoil it for us, but like, can you at least just talk around the margins of like, what, what do you, what are you kind of indirectly going around with these two guys who are like mechanics? Sure. Yeah. I'm actually, I'm perfectly happy to talk about it. Cause like, I mean, mm-hmm. if you like, I don't think this is the kind of book you worry about plot spoilers. Or yeah. Anything. I don't like a short story uh, <laughs> collection. It, yeah. Um, it's kind but, of spoiler free in a, in a way inherently, but I mean, it's more just like, I'm asking you to, to say like, sure. You know, it's a metaphor for something and I'm not, uh-huh. I, it mm-hmm. feels shitty to just be like, okay, what's it a metaphor <laughs> for? You know what I mean? Like, I'm not just going to, yeah, like, yeah, no, totally. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's. I mean, Fragonard actually came out of a game that my my next youngest brother used to play, hmm. uh, which is going to make us t- sound like total dorks. But um, we were hey, backpacking who, around. Do you Europe. know who you're talking to right now? <laughs> <laughs> um, we were backpacking around Europe, and um, we just got into our heads to. We, it's kind of like a comedy routine that we would do with each other because you're always in museums, right? And you're always seeing like the masterpieces of of world art and. F- Fragonard and Watteau are kind of like the top of this one completely decadent school of painting called Rococo Mm. that um, it like it's incredibly technically proficient. It's super ornamental, but has like nothing of substance. Um, (laughs) Hedonistic, hedonistic, right? Yeah, yeah, totally. It's like that that the painting that they keep mentioning, it's called the swing, but it's often referred to as happy accident. It's like that's the vision they keep having. It's just a. It's just a dude in a garden looking up a girl's skirt as she swings. Right. Yeah. And um, but what we would do was try to, while goofing off about them, try to insinuate some greater depth to these two characters who just paint like frilly seashells. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I was deciding to write these pieces, I just decided that I would take that structure from my brother, and uh, and you know try to I was trying to kind of provide a philosophical framework for the book um Mm. but the first one I think is pretty easy the one with the with the starfish story but as it goes on the the 
the philosophical aspect gets more and more muddled and complex and because that's what happens as frameworks and systems develop. And so, you know, basically to me, what I say is that they're basically, um, they're Rococo painters, but they're also basically chatbots um, pining about having bodies, you know? <laughs> and um, so that, that kind of describes the arc of the book for me. I, I think that's brilliant. And the, the thing that they're, trying to bring to life i mean i guess that's one of i actually will ask dave what you think the ghost engine is or what it does and like does it is it an engine that generates life or just afterlife <laughs> or is it the soul like what what was your take on it dave hmm. well it's yeah i'm not quite sure it's been i think around a month or so since i finished reading it so like the very part, fine particulars of that are like slightly hazier than they were then. We but can edit this out. Think, you can just say that, oh, sh- you read it the, today. <laughs> Christian, you tell me the answer and then I'll, we'll cut that out and then we'll I'll edit say that it and in. I'll sound really smart. <laughs> but it will say like, um, it reminded me in a really cool way of a, a book that I love by Chris Adrian called Gob's Grief. Oh yeah. Have you read that? Yep. Um, mm-hmm. where, where a boy loses his twin brother in the civil war and he mm-hmm. tries to build a resurrection machine to bring him back from the dead, mm-hmm. like f- like physically. Uh, so there, it reminded me of that kind of like magically real aspects of, of that book. Um, but I don't know if I have a great answer, Matt, to the question of what does the ghost engine do? Um, I don't know if it's a spoiler to say if that even gets resolved or not for us. Oh, I would say end. it does not. I mean, I think it's... Yeah, it's totally. Very, <laughs> it's very metaphorical and... And yeah. like, I guess, you know, what you're saying about the painters themselves being um, people just in complete pursuit of pleasure. I mean, I thought of them as like, before I even thought of them as painters, I thought of them as like writers trying to bring to life like a story or bring to life mm-hmm. like a piece of art or to, you know, imbue that with life in some way. Uh, and mm-hmm. you hear that a lot of like, I'm trying to make it work. Right. Like that's the whole mm-hmm. point of going to a writing workshop. Right. It's like get something and then try to make it work or make it better. And some things don't get off the ground. And like there's another story in here I was going to ask you about where there's two little kids who do get something off the ground. <laughs> and, and they I was like when I was reading this story, uh, I think it's called The Wrong Mother. And. Mm-hmm. I was like, is th- is this those two guys? Is this Frag and Watt as little kids? Huh. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, oh, man. Or is this something... Because um, there's a lot of, like, couples in this book or, like, pairs and, like, twins. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. Um, you know, what, what was your thinking, like, consciously or subconsciously there, I guess, about, like, having these two guys, I guess you just said, like, it's kind of like your brother, right? Like you, you and your brother were going around, you kind of have this internal, like private joke. Um, but these two guys, they're not explicitly brothers. Like they're, what did you mean by chatbots? I guess like, cause they're, they do just kind of <laughs> yeah. talk about random, like pop culture shit sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Well, chat, yeah. chatbots, like I, I have never actually engaged uh, a chatbot online, at least not knowingly. Um, but I, I'm really fascinated by these experiments. You can find them on YouTube where people put chatbots in conversation with each other. Okay. So these are like, they're supposedly artificial intelligences, but I, I, I don't know what that really means, but they, you know, they, 
they basically draw their existence from words on the internet. And so it's basically two different computers full of the internet talking back and forth to each other. Mm-hmm. And so um, it's the, the second epigraph to the book. Uh, I think it's, don't you want to have a body? Um, yeah. Don't you want to have yeah. a body? One was chat the, bot to another. Yeah, that was that was actually I found that on the internet, like two chatbots talking to each other, and they got in an argument. They called each other <laughs> liars, and then talked about how badly they wanted to have bodies. You know? That's amazing. So maybe the ghost engine is is the AI the AI is trying to create a way for them into the human world, into a human body. Well, yeah, I mean, it, for me, it's you know the the weird thing is it's, it goes to this like kind of argument that I have with myself. Like I, I had a ton of fun writing this book. I bet but that I also comes through got really to clearly. a point where I felt like I could kind of do the stuff that I wanted. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so I um I'm really against perfection and um shininess in fiction. And mm-hmm. uh and so there was kind of this struggle that I was having where I wanted to keep things messy and I was thinking about how, you know the this is not, you know, culturally, this is not my ideal world, but like the, the mechanics of this world really are something that I love. I love having a body and I also love books. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I would never want a book to take, to replace the pleasures of a body. You know what I mean? But, and yet people want to some degree, a kind of sensual pleasure from the act of reading. Mm-hmm. And so I was kind of, you know, riffing on that between the two of them. Hmm. One thing wow. around around Frag and Watt, and that is like a big theme of Tough Oklahoma as well, is uh, is violence, and uh-huh. I can like totally see how you and Adam are great friends because <laughs> his book is like rife with teenage violence and acts of violence against inanimate objects like swing sets and things like that. Um, so there's all this um, like back and forth violence between Frag and Watt in those sections, and and Kyle when he was talking about Teflahoma with us in his episode, he called it the most mind boggling work of incredibly endearing semi evangelical religious allegory, batshit crazy, fabulous. Yeah. You should read it. <laughs> that was like his endorsement for the book. <laughs> and so like, I, I wonder about the role of violence in your, in your work and about uh, the themes that you're working with kind of uh, in the same sure. way that, that Adam maybe likes to as well. Yeah, sure. I think um, I would say that Ghost Engine and Tufflehoma, I, w- I finished Tufflehoma first, uh, yeah, way, right. you know, by far, mm-hmm. but they were kind of started roughly around the same time. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, and uh, Tufflehoma, I kind of let it take over at a certain point because I kind of had a, a certain framework that I was using that was fun for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I also had a kid during that time like yeah, I was right. you know I had a couple of the stories in Ghost Engine and a couple chapters of Tufflehoma mm-hmm. and so there was this weird thing going on where I, when I was writing Tufflehoma where I was still writing a lot of violence but also uh thinking about the state of nature um, yeah. because I you know uh I know Matt has a kid who's the same age as mine so you've watched a lot of different people in that one body you know what I mean yeah and that's it's a good way to put uh, it. like so when you know I was writing Tufflehoma when my son was an actual infant. So I watched him acquire, acquire language. Um, but also I watched him acquire morality. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and Tufflehoma was kind of like a, an imagination of like a civilization that never gets civilized full yeah. of people that never become ethical, you know? Right. Um, and that was probably the most violent thing I've ever written. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
there are still vestiges of that in Ghost Engine. Um, but to me, like this kind of question of ethics took over so that the violence is more sporadic rather than more the point of things. Right. Um, yeah. And it's for me, it's I mean, it's just a, a, a fact of life. I was never one of these. You know, I never ran around street fighting on, you know, <laughs> as a pastime or anything like that. But um, my parents were uh, ministers in a Rust Belt city. Um, my dad still is. Um, and you know, I, there more than one people person tried to kill me in my childhood. You know what I mean? Um, and like as a targeted active, like by your affiliation with your parents, do you mean? Yeah. Yeah. My parents were, um, real big social justice activists in the community Mm -hmm. and, uh, they were widely loved in the community, but they pissed people off sometimes. You know what I mean? Right. I read that your dog got kidnapped. You'd mentioned in, in another interview. <laughs> yeah. And like poison, yeah. semi-poisoned or something. Jeez. Yeah. So, yeah, we had a dog napping and, you know, various, you know, different situations where mm-hmm. there were actual threats to our lives and, you know, points, you know, sc- scary times. And so it's not like I, I go around being like, oh, violence is this thing that I'm passionate about exploring. But it's just part of my, you know, my understanding of the way the world works. Hmm. And you almost did punch out. Uh, Jonathan Safran for at a party once. <laughs> no, the, see that's the thing is you know Adam was in we were in grad school together Adam Levin and I and um, I had actually met Jonathan Safran for when I was in college. Um, Bradford Morrow had actually brought him up just to meet us from he was at Princeton at the time. Mm-hmm. I just found him re- really snooty like we were I was trying to be nice and I was I was drunk by the way but um, <laughs> I was like I was like you go to Princeton. And he was like, yeah. And I was like, is it, you know, firstly, my parents met at Princeton Seminary. So I know the place, but okay. I don't know the school, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, you know, is it, is it anything like, I was drunk. I said, The Other Side of Paradise by F. Scott Fitzgerald. Mm-hmm. He was like, he gave me this blank look. And I was like, oh, sorry, I'm drunk. I mean, this side of paradise. And it, suddenly he pretended he knew what I was talking about. And I was like, what do you think? You're better than me? <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> like a Robert De Niro kind of voice. Yeah. And then like, you know. 10 years, like five years later, I tell Adam that story. Um, and it, the, the occasion of telling that was that we opened up the New Yorker and he was in the debut fiction issue. Um, and Adam turned it into this brawl, um, which he then went and told everybody about. And he would do that. Turn it into a brawl. <laughs> yeah. So I, um, I gotta say my, um, one interaction with him was at the memorial service for David Foster Wallace at, Oh, NYU he was there too. In 2008. Uh, and he, you know, he was still married to Nicole Krause and they mm-hmm. actually sat like right behind me and I was sitting with my friend Michael and like I just wanted to talk so much shit about that guy um, <laughs> and, and we had to wait until like we were polite and said hello and like um, and then we got to a bar later that night and Michael and I were like that guy's such a fucking lightweight and like it was it was like we had this pent up like frustration of we couldn't vent until we were like safely um far far away from him but um i you know my my father was also a minister when i was growing up up to the age of like oh, wow. 10 or 11 um he's he's so got a couple of pk's here he changed yeah this is wild man changed yeah. career paths Dave does have a kid too, by the way. And, um, okay. Yeah. She's you know, three. My oldest is, I actually have two. My oldest is 13 and like seeing those sort of different lives, uh, that actually makes me see Tuflahoma in a different way 
And yeah. I almost feel like, you know, we're focused on Ghost Engine here today, but I almost feel like we should, like, talk to you again and just talk about Tufflehoma. Because uh, mm-hmm. yeah. Dave and I both really enjoyed that book. Yeah, it's, we had it's, it's kind of private correspondence about that book as well. So I, I would say um, anyone who's interested in your work, definitely pick up these two books. But you've actually published mm-hmm. like five several or six other total, books. Right. right? Yeah. And, um, yeah. you know, the the um, trajectory of your career, I guess, you know, a lot of people get asked this question of like, do you see yourself mainly writing short short stories or or novels? Well, I um, strongly prefer writing short stories. Like, I have the most fun writing short stories. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've come to accept that, like, sometimes I have, like, ideas that take longer to write. And uh, what I tend to do is just kind of, I use short stories as this kind of break from novels. And uh, when I get it, I mean, it's weird because I, I, I have another novel coming out in the fall and I just came out with Ghost Engine. This fall you have it coming out. Yeah. Amazing. What's it called? Uh, it's called The Apology. Okay. Great. Uh, it's about office, office politics. Um, <laughs> the Pale King but, uh, <laughs> uh, reloaded a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, it, but this, you know, the, I, I, if I could just write short stories, if I never had novel ideas, that would be heavenly. But it also, I mean, I've really published literally every short story that I ever felt was finished. And that's, that's two slim volumes in 20 years. You know what I mean? Mm. So, well, um, in you saying that it was like messiness there that I got to say, this felt like super polished to me. I didn't see any signs of messiness at, yeah, at it's, all. It's tight. Um, and saw it. but what you're saying about the office, it reminds me one of my favorite lines in this book, which is from one of the other like long stories called hard times and Galt's Gulch. Uh, he said, like, I've never read a fiction writer who showed any evidence he'd ever been seen the inside of an office. <laughs> I, I, I love that because, you know, that's like, I'm not a writer. I have an office job, although it's now work from home job like everyone else. Um, and uh-huh. I, I totally agree. And like whatever gets called like the great novels of the office are like just totally ring false to me. And uh, <laughs> Uh, so I'm really looking forward to to whatever your next book turns out to be. Um, <laughs> uh, the apology, I guess, it's done, right? Like you said, it, yeah. It's, it, I I just submitted the final edits uh, last week. Wow! So, congrats. congrats. I'm um, keeping thanks. my eyes peeled for that. So that story, hard times in, in Galt's Gulch. Um, you know that <sighs> that to me is one of the best stories in here, and that. Is this I, the Ayn Rand book club story? Yeah. <laughs> oh man, love. But it. I got I so I got the book slightly before Dave, and like I sent him a photo of this opening page of this book because I was like laughing my ass off. The first line of the book is like "fuck you to Bordeaux," and like I, <laughs> I was like, "This is great. It can only get yeah. better from here, right?" And um, <laughs> you know, obviously, like Galt Sculch, I knew it was going to be like Ayn Rand reference. Ayn Rand, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> but I wanted to ask you the, the dedicate or the kind of like kind of dedication line there is after Castellanos, Moya, after Bernhard, which is like two of my favorite writers. And Dave and I have a thing or I've, I've told Dave this many times. It's like when we're talking to a writer. And this mm-hmm. is advice for anyone who goes to like a reading 
don't ask a writer about any other book except for the book that they're there to talk about like <laughs> period and it's like forget no other books exist at that moment like do not but i have to ask you about that 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 line mm-hmm. uh the dedication to it and like what if there's any sort of like interesting backstory for this where this story came from well i'd say uh, yeah i mean i i would hope it's interesting but i uh i'd had the idea for the story for a really long time and i was kind of just trying to write it as a straight story mm-hmm. um and then obviously i i think i read Bernhard for the first time when i was in like high school you know i love Bernhard. um but it never occurred to me to uh, to borrow from him for this particular story, and then uh, my friend Lee Klein published a translation of uh, Cassianos Moya's uh, book El Asco, uh, which is translated as Thomas Bernhard in El Salvador, um, with new directions, and he had sent me a draft of it while he was still trying to look for the rights to it. And when it came out, I reread the the final version and I was like, oh, I'm just going to straight rip this off. I'm going <laughs> to, you know, and I was like, find somebody that hates me as much as, you know, as Bernhard and Castellanos Moya hate. You know what I mean? And so that's where I got I was like, the first line should be fuck you to Bordeaux. And I stole a bunch of gestures from those guys and I just wrote. And it was pretty easy after that. You know? So the conceit that's... of it is that it's like your ex-girlfriend is writing to you like what 10 15 years later after the end of the relationship and she's just uh-huh. like calling you a fraud basically yeah. um it had also to me a little bit shades of like good old neon by wallace uh uh-huh. the, the idea of fraudulence um being like a, a big thematic aspect of the story but yeah like absolutely yeah and she, i think it's weird because i see a lot of it's funny because i don't tend to think of bernhard and and wallace together often except when it comes to oblivion which there are several stories that look very very heavily influenced by bernhardt in the, hmm. that collection you know well in fact good old neon first appeared in uh conjunctions with the 50th i think the 50th issue 50th anniversary issue oh, wow. um huh. so brad morrow first published that and i remember going to saint mark's books in the east village to buy that issue of conjunctions um and just to read the new wall story in it. And like, I thought that was one of his best works. Um, yeah, absolutely. But Bern, Bernhard for people who haven't read him. I mean, I just probably this year read gargoyles and like, yeah. I can kind of see why you have like an interest in him. And that he also has a pretty bleak, like you were saying with Saunders, it's like, it all works out in the end. It's like, it does not with Bern, <laughs> Bernhard. It's like, it, it's never even set up to work out for the best ever. Um, it's uh-huh. pretty bleak, like worldview with that guy. Um, what's yeah. your, what's your line Christian on page 179? I have it here. Um, I am mediocrity at best, but I have some principles. My principles tell me that the redemption we need is bigger than any one of us. If the revelation ever comes, it's going to be very loud and very fucking ugly. <laughs> um, so Saunders might have a more delicate form of redemption or revelation uh, that isn't quite so aggressive. But, so yeah, it's yeah. parallel there. Yeah. He's, you know, he studied Buddhism and stuff. It's, yeah, it's yeah. different from Calvinism. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. That is true. <laughs> yeah, and that... So that story, you, you mentioned some um, some real-world people in there. Uh, just yeah. like, I guess, you know, Bernhard and Castellanos Moya mentioned real people. Um, but, like, you know, it, how much of that is true? I guess we'll just ask you, like, 
they went to your high school, Jim yeah. Scott, Ulibis. We were we were all in the same class in high school. Yeah, um, it's weird because uh, my parents uh, is there's a whole weird background thing here. My parents were ministers in this town called Cahos, and they had actually accepted a. Uh, a new job at a church in a small town out of Rochester, New York, and then our house burned down, and oh. they took it as a sign from God that we should stay here. Um, mm. And so what they did was they had insurance money all of a sudden, so they got us uh, a house in the suburbs that they stayed in long enough to get us through the really good public school system in the suburbs, at which point they went back to the manse in, in Cohoes. Um, but so, yeah, for the, that few years, I was in basically every class with both Eula and Jim and, uh, they were, they were great kids. <laughs> okay. So they so they show up in the story, uh, like in the uh-huh. line, if Jim and Eula won't reply to your emails, you'll have to do yourself <laughs> copy and paste this motherfucker into one of your books, a mediocrity within a mediocrity. <laughs> so like very delicious, uh, meta, meta fictional stuff. Like you're, you're writing yourself. It's like a takedown of yourself. I think, uh-huh. uh, the idea is about going to college, grad school, publishing a couple books. No one will ever read fancy professorship job for life that's mediocrity to border which is the old version of mediocrity page 173 so like i I love the self-deprecating uh stuff that you have going on in that story yeah well i would i mean i would say all of the beats of my own life that i put in that story Mm -hmm. are roughly biographically correct you know Mm -hmm. what i mean yeah yeah Um, i had a a feeling maybe I invented a lot of stuff around it. So like, I never had that girlfriend, you know what I mean? Um, and I wanted, <laughs> or did like, you? Uh, I wanted to invent this girlfriend who was way cooler than me, who had a dim view of me. And the whole point of for the, the, the narrative take for me for the story was I am the, the second section where I talk about Jim and Eula, um, mm-hmm. in my own quote, quote unquote, my own voice, um, is biographically correct um except i never tore apart a barnes and noble um anything like that <laughs> right um but like i mean the, the broad strokes there are are correct um but i tried to write it in a voice that sounded like the voice that she the the girlfriend was imputing to me mm-hmm. so i was like i will be the the petty bitter mediocrity that she describes you know what i mean mm-hmm. totally and, and now that i've broken my rule about asking about other writers. writers we've mentioned at least four of them right now um, but anyone's foregrounded coming on a show about that's typically about wallace anyways right so you have to know yeah. that going in yeah. with us. I, I guess talk about anybody i i'm just telling you i've this is a lesson i've learned the hard way and i'm i'd still even if i break it i have to acknowledge it um, mm-hmm. but, uh, so i have to ask you about the question how we uh, the story how we lived on main street and oh, yeah. I think there's a lot of uh, metaphor going on in this story, especially the idea of uh, we have never lived in the castle, which I'm assuming yeah, yeah. we have always lived in the castle is Shirley Jackson reference. And, um, uh-huh. you Good know, what's that. one of my favorite writers? I'm like in a big Shirley Jackson phase right now. The movie just came out with uh, Elizabeth Moss. Is right. that like what's going on there? Like between Main Street and the castle? Maybe I'm maybe I'm wrong. Maybe that's not right. And how does Baudrillard factor into it as well? I might ask. Like the procession of simulacrum <laughs> entered into this story because <laughs> he writes but, about I mean, Main Street USA in that in that famous essay. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, you know, it's weird. The 
I, so that main street is the, for me, the chronological first in a series, all of the short stories, the very short ones in the collection that aren't about frag and Watt. Mm-hmm. Um, each of those, I think there are six of them and each of them represents a different land in Disney world. Oh shit. Um, that is Baudrillard. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the, so for example, you had mentioned the wrong mother earlier about the boys who get the, the, flying bicycle off the ground it's like dumbo um, that was my representation of those yeah it's kind of like the dumbo ride but the rocket ship ride in tomorrowland oh yeah oh, wow um, okay yeah and then there's uh the uh bear country is the country bear jamboree oh my gosh etc etc so i totally um, missed this man. i feel like a terrible reader right now I totally missed this. oh dog there's no there's no <laughs> expectation there <laughs> i was excited to but reread yeah, was... ghost engine and now i'm like super psyched to reread ghost engine. <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah and is is the the idea was so those other stories the theme, thematic links where characters show up was one way i was messing with pop culture and the other was trying to create the most perverse version without seeming perverse of disney world you know mm-hmm. um like, I didn't want to be like, you know, I didn't want to do like transgressive fiction with like blood and guts and stuff. But I wanted to be like, well, how did the Swiss family Robinson plan to propagate oh, the species? Shit. You know what I mean? That right. kind of thing. Oh, shit. Um, I, I love that story. American family Robinson. Yeah, that's um, great. Thanks. Which the first part of it, this is a house surrounded by fires. The Internet goes out. I was like, this could um, actually be like a pandemic story. Like at the beginning. Totally. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, there's some great lines in that. I actually really love this line from that story that says, later that night, I stood on the back deck and watched my parents swim naked in the pool by the light of the not too distant fires. Like that one sentence I felt like could be a short story, like Gary Luke's. Mm, nice. Well, thank you. Um, <laughs> and then like later in that sentence, you, see it's, you said it's like uprooted the Garden of Eden and grafted it into hell. So it's like surrounded uh-huh. by fire around the neighborhood. Yeah, that's a yeah. great story. And it's like, it struck me that that story was so different stylistically than every other story in the book. And so uh-huh. it's like this lovely moment of like, wow, there's like a very uh, significant form of range going on throughout this collection. Yeah. Well, I mean, with that one, it was it, like, I, I mess around with that outside of the text as well. Like, cause mm-hmm. you're correct that there is some like Baudrillardian messing around i'm not i'm mm-hmm. not a big literary theory guy but the simulacrum yeah. thing is is something that's on my mind sometimes yeah um but with with that one uh because it's narrated by a woman and there's no really really no way of expressing that when i'm doing like a public reading mm-hmm. like i had a public reading where i was in the audience but i didn't show up for my reading and had uh, a friend of mine jamie fountain who's an incredible writer um just walk up to the mic and do the reading for me and stuff <laughs> some jt um, leroy shit there <laughs> um and one thing i loved about that story too was the at the beginning the father um after he's sort of stuck in his quarantine right in pandemic house starts painting this huge mural on the basement and it says he just kind of took up painting and i felt like the thing that he paints is this sort of you know canopy this dense sort of tropical jungle and it's like, even though he had, what's the line? It's a tropical scene that betrayed a lack of training in the fact that he'd never been to the tropics. And I actually felt like this was a metaphor for like creation, right? And that this is mm-hmm. like, they are creating a new world. And, you know, this is the Garden of Eden, or this is like, you know, God 
creating the world who also had no experience as far as we know like creating another world um, uh-huh, uh-huh. and i thought that was a super interesting idea i'd never thought uh-huh. about before like the creator not having any experience with creation but being like really good at it <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's i mean that's and it, the the other thing is is that putting stuff like that in also kind of uh martin amos has this uh riff about as a as a craftsman uh one thing you could do is if there's stuff you're not very good at really is just announce it. You know what I mean? And so, um, when I'm obviously being fictional, sometimes I, I, you know, I I hold back for the most part on the kind of metafictional gesture these days. Mm. Um, except I couldn't, I couldn't hold off with the Galt's Gulch story. Right. But for the most part, um, for the most part, like I will put something like that in there and it's kind of way, it's also to distract you the fact from the fact that here I am trying to write about sisterhood when I've never been a sister, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, so it's kind of like a way of acknowledging that I'm making, this is an artifice, you know? Mm-hmm. Wow. I didn't say, I thought that you pulled that off extremely well. And I did make a note in the margin, like when you said my sister and I, and I was like, okay, to me, that's enough to say that, like, this is probably, you know, a woman writing this. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but I was immediately looking for that cue just as a reader of like, okay, what am I, you know, what, what am I reading here? Is this, uh, is this a man? Like, probably not. Um, but the, that, that scene, I thought, um, where the, the sister, I should say the narrator really goes into the sister's room and sees her like burning up her own writing. Um, Mm -hmm. And the narrator says something like the world's ending mom and dad have lost it. And it's like, that's actually my life right now. And uh, (laughs) the world's ending mom and dad have lost it. And like, what's the point of writing? You know, like I, I feel like that um, the question, one question's on my mind is like, what's it, what's it like trying to write these days? Right. Like what, what does it feel Uh, like to, you know, it's like cliche to say like, Oh, we're living in, in some kind of like a DeLillo novel or something, but (laughs) it's, you know, how do you, how do you create fiction that, that gives meaning to people who are actually experiencing things like this right now? Well, you know, it's weird because I, I do think that I have a different take on fiction than I think is being, asked for right now um not not from you but from the culture at large mm. um i you know i recall i teach uh, a, a seminar in the 18th century novel to my grad students and i uh i consider my job to get them comfortable with ambiguity you know what i mean yeah. um and part of that is on the textual level like we just don't know if don quixote is a madman or not you know what right. i mean um but then part of that is uh, on a just a, a way of moving forward as a fiction writer and as a human being, you know. So I, I, I've joked that as a writer with depressive tendencies, lockdown is not that hard for me. Um, <laughs> you know, it's uh, I, raising a child in lockdown is much it is, is a much different issue. You right. Know what I mean? <laughs> um, but, right, you know, writing fiction for me is uh, it's a bummer those times when you think, oh, this development in society, such as lockdown, which seems to have been messing with book sales and the publishing industry, et cetera, is going to make it even harder to place my next book. You know what I mean? That's, mm-hmm. that's a kind of, it's a thought that I have. And I also recognize it as a fairly petty thought, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, but 
I, I do think that um, the way I think about fiction as, is as a way of learning to live in, in ambiguity and learning to not have answers and to accept that. Um, but also, I mean, like the, the, you know, to get explicitly political, I, I think that the neoliberal political project is to fully is the, the goal is to fully atomize us and finally liquidate us. You know what I mean? So, um, this kind of sense of isolation and aloneness, mm-hmm. uh, feels like practice for what will happen if we don't change something soon. You know what I mean? Hmm. Wow. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, I haven't thought about the liquidation. I'm sorry. Part. I'm sorry. No, 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 no. I haven't <laughs> thought about the liquidation part of it, but I mean, that's uh, not to put too fine a point on it, but that is, um, I think that's on a lot of people's minds right now. So that makes sense. Yeah. And I don't know if you've, I guess, you know, as a writer, uh, I think of myself primarily as a reader and like for me, reading has been really hard. And I'm trying to figure out why, like during these few months, I thought like, oh, I'm stuck at home. I'm going to get a ton of reading done. Like I've a, heard a uh, lot of people say this. Shit ton of books in here that I haven't read um, <laughs> that I want to read. You know what I mean? And I think, you know, maybe some of it is like I'm so used to, you know, my routines are off and I'm so used to running around and being like from here to there. And like my mind just can't adapt to being in one physical place. Um, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. is that, I guess, you know, most writers or not most, writers, a lot of writers find, you know, they do most of their writing at home anyways. So mm-hmm. it's not necessarily true with reading. Like you could go to a park and go to a coffee shop. I think it'd be very hard to write at a coffee shop personally. I, I only, I um, only write in coffee shops. Oh, fuck. oh yeah, that's cool. God, <laughs> just ruined my whole train of thought. <laughs> oh no, 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 go on. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, no. No, no, no. I, that, so that's interesting to me because uh, coffee shops here closed. You can't sit in them, right? And so right, like, right. people yeah. are stuck at home and like, mm-hmm. I don't know. Have, have either of you felt this like lack of being able to, I don't know if it's the content of the books that I've been trying to read. It's very hard to like, I just feel like I've been bouncing around by being mm-hmm. at home now. I'm going on like four months. Huh. Yeah, you've been at it a long time, longer than I have by about a month or two, I think, Matt. Um, I've felt reading to be like okay during this period, but I also think that it probably has to do with my geography right now a little bit, being in like tucked away in the bottom corner of the world where um, <laughs> social issues are not quite so pronounced at the moment and COVID is like under control. And so I don't think like I, I get the distraction aspect of that. In Do you seriously only write in way. coffee shops? Are you are you fucking with me? Are you serious? Well, no. I mean, I'm, I'm actually. I mean, I'm capable of writing outside of coffee shops, but no. It's there's a weird thing. I I really I like being alone, but I also like being among people. Do you need and like the hum so, of human energy around you? Like, does it kind of like energize you in some way? To yeah, write? totally. Yeah. There's a the the coffee shop I write at in Chicago, is uh it's actually a bakery. It's called Letizia's, mm-hmm. and. It's not, it's, uh, it's in the Wicker Park neighborhood, which is like a former cool neighborhood, you know? Mm. Um, but it's not like a cool coffee shop. It's like people come in and get their pastries. Um, so there's like a hum around me, but like no one there is trying to talk to me or anything like that. So I have Mm. noise and bustle, but everybody just leaves me alone. Mm. And, uh, that's kind of like the ideal situation for writing for me, Mm. but I've been, I've been able to, to get some writing done at home the, i mean schooling your child while trying to make room for me and my wife to both have our our jobs is mm-hmm. a bigger uh obstacle to actual like 
writing time. But as far as reading, I think I made a I, I made a super corny decision. Like I read The Plague again <laughs> the day that, that quarantine started. Like they told us we were locked down, and I was like, I guess I'm reading The Plague. Um, yeah. And I found it to be this kind of like incredibly fortifying and encouraging book, um, which led me to just find books that I thought were going to be, you know, from my childhood or like had just always thought would just be like dark and dreary. Um, and I read a bunch of depressing stuff that actually ended up buoying me for months um, to where I reading just stayed part of what I do, you know? Hmm. Okay. That's pretty nice. Well, and I should say there is some Camus in this book. Um, and yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. The myth of the myth of Sisyphus. Yeah, the, the myth of the myth of Sisyphus, which honestly <laughs> took me a second to process, right? Because it's like, in a way, a triple negative, right? Like, like yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh, totally, totally. Um, I struggle with triple negatives too, Matt. It's like, <laughs> it's well, cool. I, you know, I don't, I don't, because what Camus is saying, right? You have to imagine Sisyphus is happy. Um, mm-hmm. And you're like, no, that's a myth. But then there's the myth <laughs> of the myth of Sisyphus. Um, I'm like, you know, is, is that, I guess, a metaphor for art as well? Or am I just like grasping at straws here? Well, that's, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, there's like I really you, you were right when you, when you guys were kind of talking around Ghost Engine. There's a really, really easy metaphor that I feel like people are scared to just say to me because it sounds too obvious. But the the book is a ghost engine. You know what I mean? Um, and so this kind of like the the dancing around uh, the Camus to me is um, them kind of coming to a realization. Remember that books and life are two different things, and like a book is a thing that exists in life, you know. And uh, the I I read Kierkegaard and Camus that they were my adolescent rebellion, like no joke. <laughs> um, my, yeah, my dad, you know, is uh, he's a he's a proper evangelical, mm-hmm. um, but. So I popped the cure standing on a beach into the tape deck one day when I was in ninth grade <laughs> and he heard it and he was like, this is existential garbage. And I was like, Hey dad, what's existential garbage? Uh-huh. And he told me, you know, like Kierkegaard and Camus. And so I read Kierkegaard and Camus. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I've always come out on the side of Kierkegaard. Right. Uh, and so Camus conclusion that one must uh, imagine Sisyphus happy um, I don't know what, for me, it seems like a kind of, you know, pulled out of the air kind of like, oh, this is a way to stay alive. But, um, to, to me, the, you go back and read the Greek myths, Sisyphus is dead. You know what I mean? So it doesn't matter if he's happy or sad, you know? So, uh-huh. <laughs> um, for me, the, the point is, is to, that, that life is good, you know? Hmm. Now that's, that's fascinating. Cause it's, it, you're right. No one ever goes back and just says like, oh, actually he, he dies. Like the, the point, the point of it, he's not eternally just pushing up a rock up a hill, right? I mean, which mm-hmm. is anyone's, I guess. You know, it, that's a matter of of disposition, I guess. Like, are you naturally predisposed to 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 viewing your life that way as a writer? I, I think uh-huh. there are people who are right, like depressives. Um, uh-huh. I think you know, Wallace was a depressive. Um, mm-hmm. We're like past an hour right now. I'll just go ahead and tell you, but I think we haven't even got to ask you. Like, what is your take on Wallace? Like, yeah, you what's, mind, your, hot, do you what's mind, your hot? Do you mind asking? Just like in general, sure. since we have you, I don't know what else we will get to chat again. So, uh, since Kyle made that really cryptic statement to us about <laughs> what your view is, yeah. well, 
We yeah, built think, suspense um, for an hour for our listeners and ourselves, so drop it on us. <laughs> all right. Um, I mean, I, I, I'm not sure what anybody's referring to when they talk about my take on Wallace, because I've said a lot of stuff about that dude over the years. <laughs> sure. um, like, I, I, you know, I read Wallace contemporaneously, starting with Infinite Jest. You know what I mean? I, um, I uh, love his fiction. Uh, and I particularly love his short stories, which I go back to all the time. Mm-hmm. And I think probably what Kyle is referring to is like, we really did like our relationship started with me being like, I just read your review of the pale King. Um, and I saw some kids trying to dunk on it online, but I think you're pretty close to right. And I would like to help your help refining my mm. feelings about this. Yeah. <laughs> and we just kind of went back and forth. Um, and I think, uh, what I, you know, what I, part of, I think what, people very close to me would be saying when they say that I have a strange take on Wallace is that I also really like Brett Easton Ellis. Um, <laughs> okay. Yeah. And, uh, um, and I think for, for me, Ellis is, uh, his outlook on life is a little, his outlook on life as expressed in his fiction, his online persona is ridiculous. You know what I mean? But, right, yeah. um, his, the way he expresses things in his fiction, uh, makes a lot of sense to me. And so attacks on his outlook seem, uh, seem like they have a hurdle to clear when I, when I see them. And so I think uh, Wallace's view of empathy is something that's really, really reducible. And I, um, I'm suspicious of empathy and I'm on the, um, I'm lucky because having grown up with minister parents, I've always had compassion as mm. my, my go-to, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Um, and so compassion is difficult to do, but not hard to theorize, you know? Um, it means right. just loving people. Yeah. Um, whereas empathy is like trying to feel everything. And then like what I've seen, like the people that talk about empathy often seem like, uh, very, very picky and choosy about who they're empathetic with. And uh, the example mm-hmm. that I use in the, in a really, really easy way is one of the examples that he uses in, uh, the, the graduation speech, you know, um, right. where he kind of ends up saying like, uh, you know, imagine that the people have motives that you'd be comfortable with. And that's why they're behaving that way. You know what I mean? It's like, right. I, um, like the SUV driver who's like racing to the hospital cause their kid's sick or whatever. Right. Right. And it's like, well, why could it, could the world still be beautiful if somebody actually just wanted to cut you off with their SUV? You know what I mean? <laughs> and I think it can, you know, you know, it's funny. I was thinking about that. I was thinking about that story today. I mean, that, that specific example in the speech today of, and I, I I thought it was a little different than empathy of like, oh, have empathy for other people because you don't know the whole story. And I guess I focused more on that part of like, you don't know the whole story. And like that uh-huh. part of it, that part of it intrigues me. And like there was a controversy uh-huh. in Austin this week where some guy on Twitter was going through the Austin police budget and found there was a line item that was like $3,000 for puffed cheese snacks. <laughs> And he and he tweeted at the the Austin Police Department like, "Are you fucking kidding me? Like three thousand dollars for Cheetos? Like you, crazy ass!" And it's like it seems crazy. So like when we say defund the police, like that's a good place to start. But but it's like on its face, that's ridiculous. Like why is the APD spending three thousand dollars on Cheetos? Uh And the APD responds on Twitter and says, "Um, "Actually, that is money we got from a grant." to buy shelf stable snacks for a battered women's shelter. And uh-huh. it was, uh-huh. and it's just like, Oh, well fuck. We actually 
criti- something on its face that seems like uh-huh. really right. annoying or offensive. And it's like, I'm not trying to have empathy for the cops, but it's just like, you don't know the whole story. <laughs> and something right. that yeah. seems on its face absurd or like super fucking ridiculous actually has a legit reason to it. And like that sort of like double bind things. I think that's what interested Wallace. Like, I'm not defending him, but like, I think, no, no, no. I think I've read, I, 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 I think there's absolutely, I mean like the, I think there's a case to be made. I, I graduation speeches are graduation speeches, you know what uh-huh. I mean? But like, but also I think there's absolutely a case to be made for most of what he says. And I think, you know, my dad would probably wish I would write something like that than what I usually write. You know, but, um, <laughs> Fuck you, dad. I wrote like a I think, story about a Cosby show <laughs> and Chris, Christian metal. Yeah. <laughs> But, but like, I think uh, it, it, what I was really pushing back against was that they were, you know, it's, it's weird because this was seven, eight, nine years ago now. And now his reputation is nearly the opposite. And mm-hmm. I was like, why would we want to make him a saint? And why would we want to make him, make him a devil? You know what I mean? He was like a, a really, really complicated dude and a really complicated writer. And I would much rather engage that way, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, believe me that the whole just even moralizing at all has made it difficult to be a fan of someone, you know? Uh Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, this idea of like (sighs) Wallace in one of his interviews, he, uh, he's asked if he ever like got to meet his literary heroes. And he mentions like DeLillo and Cormac McCarthy and stuff. And he's like, he's like, yes, I did get to meet those guys, but honestly I didn't even want to chat with them because it makes them more, like different than the voice that's in their writing. And like, Mm -hmm. I felt like this tension right after Wallace died of like the people who wanted to focus on the person and the people who wanted to focus on the, the writing. And I feel like there's, it's, it's high minded of me to say like, Oh, I'm one of the ones who wanted to focus on just, just on his writing. It's like bullshit. Mm -hmm. People are not just writing. You know what I mean? Like we're talking to you uh-huh. as a human mm-hmm. being right now. If we just wanted to engage with your work, like I guess I could go put this on my blog and mm-hmm. email you some questions and never, I, I don't know. I mean, there's, how do you feel about this? I mean, I, I, I'm not even sure where I stand on it. I feel very conflicted uh-huh. about it. Cause I do, you know, we've already talked about like, okay, George Saunders, I did meet him one time and talk to him and like literally like most generous person I've ever met. But that's not mm-hmm. like a reflection of his writing, right? Like, do uh-huh. I like do I like everything he's written? No, uh-huh. that's a different. I don't know. That's a different feeling than like he's a super generous guy. And like, I guess I would yeah. rather there be more people like that. I have had writers who I think are total dicks, and I'm not going to name <laughs> them. But like Wallace was kind of one of them. He was actually a dick to me. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> um, and I've told that story, and I've told a couple of other stories about him where it's like he's kind of a dick to me, but it's like. So what? Uh-huh. I don't know. Yeah, I th- you know, I, I mean, it's, it's strange because, you know, we live our lives. I think a writer of my quote unquote stature should not know anybody. You know what I mean? And it's, and uh, because we live our lives in public in a, in a way that previous generations of writers and readers haven't, mm-hmm. um, I think there's a, there's a greater concern with that kind of thing. But, you know, it's, I, I really, really, and, and and it may be because 
when we were going through the like the hagiographic hey stage where he was just being sainted, right. um, I was like, I, I know him not to have been this person that you're making him. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and part of that was because, you know, I said he would marry Carr at Syracuse and I was the doofus that was like, hey, why can't David Foster Wallace ever come here? You know what I mean? <laughs> um, oh, no. And so like. Well, I mean, Mary's cool. You know what I mean? She didn't, yeah. you know, I didn't know why David Foster Wallace would never be there. You know yeah, I mean? exactly. Yeah. Um, it's so like, well, she, actually, she, like, uh, here's the history. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. She, I mean, she explained it to me and it was like, oh, well, this is something that I have to kind of process with regard to this dude. And so like, mm-hmm. yeah. um, I, I, my, you know, my sense of a writer as a hero is really, really only textual but i absolutely have to process that shit when it when i learn about it and Mm -hmm. it's and but in the same way i think i think i was maybe angrier at the world that was trying to make him a saint than it's trying to make him a devil because i don't think his work's going away you know what i mean yeah and i think we can now we have both of those levels and it's Mm -hmm. kind of evened out to where we have a if you're going to do biographical criticism which is just not my thing Mm -hmm. you have all the elements of it now you know true yeah can i ask what she said what did she say um, I think she just said she had a restraining order against him, mm-hmm. if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so it was like, it, like I, I was not going to push anything deeper, um, but it was very, but she was chill about it. She wasn't like, you know, she wasn't like, don't read that guy or, you know, yeah. don't ask me about that guy or anything. You know what I mean? Oh no. She, I mean, she, she wrote about him after he died. Right. And, right. Um, I, of course I, you know, did ask her about it this um, and I think she, she still gets asked about it, right? Like she'll be asked about uh-huh. it today. And I think you're right. She's not going to be like, oh, you don't ask me that. Because um, mm-hmm. I think there's part of her who's also like, she has some, I don't know, appreciation for him. Like, I mean, yeah. she's, a, she's a Catholic, right? So she believes in forgiveness. Uh-huh. She mm-hmm. believes in some yeah. kind of redemption. And mm-hmm. she has a very different worldview. And she didn't, I, when I asked her about, David Foster Wallace, she didn't seem bitter at all. She didn't seem mad yeah, no, I mean, or upset or taken aback or anything. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's it's also worth keeping in mind that he was a, I mean, this is not a justification for him, but she, I think she was aware of him as a, as a pretty sick guy. Um, and, uh, but she also, she was, Mary's, Mary's a wild person. You know what I mean? Like she's always surprising <laughs> and, uh, you know, she's uh, incredibly smart, but also incredibly quick. You know what I mean? Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, and so you, I wouldn't, you know, I, I, I don't think that she, in fact, I think she kind of encouraged us to continue reading him. Uh, but I don't think she ever would have encouraged us to try to uh, emulate him um, as a writer. That is even like, I, and I also think there's a reason for that, which is that I just don't do what he does, you know, uh-huh. but she's also, I mean, she's, she's just really funny and kind of can come out of left field. I remember on like September 13th, 2001, like it was like my second year of graduate school and I had just started teaching on September 11th. And, uh, she was just like, tomorrow I'm going to have to shoot you in the foot. And I was like, (laughs) what? What? She was like, you know, just in case there's a draft. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah. yeah. Very, she's very Texan, you know, (laughs) like she, yeah. <laughs> because I do actually just happen to have this gun here on me uh, as a result of being from Texas, <laughs> being an enthusiast for guns. <laughs> well, this has been great. I feel like the the one story I, I wanted to ask you about, we haven't talked much about, is the Gordon Gartrell story. Uh-huh. Um, and like, 
you know, when I first read that, I was like, okay, it took me a second to realize like what was going on. And then I went and looked it up and I was like, oh, okay, this is like, this is a real episode of the Cosby show. And the writer's name was Gordon Gartrell. And he's used <laughs> as like the name of this fashion designer in the episode. But in the story, it's like, there's another Gordon Gartrell who is a fashion designer. Who's not like, so right. in a way there's like a third Gordon Gartrell. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, what, what appealed to you about that, that story or how did you like come across that episode from 1984? (laughs) Well, I mean, it's, you know, the Cosby show was the first thing I ever remember thinking was funny, you know? Uh Um, and it was like, I must've been five or six when it aired. And that was like the first time I got to stay up past eight o'clock, you know, parent Um, approved. They love that. I bet. Yeah, exactly. So I remembered that episode forever, you know, um, and it was just out of like, I was just thinking, well, what if there actually already was a fashion designer named Gordon Gartrell, but he didn't want to design those like from, from then on he's marked, you know what I mean? Um, and that's where the story came from. It was weird because the, um, I had no idea about Cosby's, you know, crimes at the time that I started working on that story. I started working on the story at like 2008 or nine, I think 10, maybe, um, and so I was already into the story and I was already on the path to making him the villain of the story. Um, and then I actually had to step back when the charges came and I was like, this is just too fucked up. You know what mm-hmm, I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, right. but th- you know, then I was like, well, this story is about Gordon Gartrell. It's not about Bill Cosby, you know? So, um, hmm. so yeah, I thought it was, it, it was a very timely story, right? In a, in a way it's a very timely story, but you didn't, you didn't <laughs> intend on it being that timely. No, no. In fact, I'd, I'd been like, I don't think anybody will, I don't know how many people in the world that this could resonate with in any way, but, um, mm. but yeah, it was, uh, that, that one, I, uh, the key for me was this, remember that, uh, remember when they started releasing like everything from Roberto, Roberto Bolaño and like the last one, the, the problem of evil, that wasn't the last one they released, but that one, that was just like scraps from the desktop, you know, the secret of evil. And, Oh, yeah. that's right. The secret yeah. of evil. And, uh, it was like, man, I was like, this is the first time I felt ripped off. Um, <laughs> cause it's, it's really just kind of scraps, you know? And then, then I got to this one story where he's describing a photograph and I was like, I'm going to use this as my structure for the story. Mm. Um, mm. and obviously yeah. went in my own direction with it. I'm a huge Bolaño fan and reader, and he actually has another book coming out next year. Oh, really? Um, I saw that. Called, called Cowboy that. Graves. And I have a, a Bolaño blog called BolanoBolano.com where I've cataloged everything that hasn't come out. So there's still a handful of stories and a couple really? of novels uh, wow, that have not cool. been translated. And there's a couple that have hmm. been actually published in Spanish, but not in English. Um, so hmm. even though this one coming out, like clearly his agent is Andrew Wiley in the U.S. And like clearly they've put together like at least one other book in addition to this one. Um, Wow. But I mean, he was super prolific and like wrote in, in various stages of his career without publishing at all. Right. So he wrote for Uh like years without publishing and just built up this huge catalog of stuff. Um, Mm. I'm sorry. I'm going off on this tangent just because you brought it up, but I felt like that when they published the secret of science fiction, I was like, man, this is, Mm. this is actually like, it would have been fine if this is not published. 
you know what I mean? <laughs> um, and, and I'm, I'm not slagging on it too much, but like a little bit where I didn't, I don't know if I felt ripped off completely, but a little bit where I was like, this is, I could do without this one, you know, hmm. like yeah. do something yeah, interesting. Yeah, I've thought very little about one that one since I read it, but I don't re- regret reading it. And I mean, that dude, I mean, it was, I was, I, I'm almost never in a, like a reading slump, but I was in a massive reading slump. And then I, and I, I had not read The Savage Detectives. Um, I'm reading I'm, that right now. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah like so, I mean, I love two thirds of the way through. Okay. Yeah. But I'd been putting off on it because uh, particularly with uh, international novels, there seems to be this like hype machine. And I feel like it's best to wait a couple years to see if the books are actually good. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, I did that with Knausgaard and I liked uh, I didn't I didn't read my struggle, but I read um, some of his early stuff and enjoyed it. But uh, but with Bolaño, I was holding off and then I saw the the cover of 2666 was just so beautiful that mm-hmm. I picked it up. And I read the first page and I was like, okay, I'm reading this now, you know, yeah. and that not only pulled me out of my reading slump, like, because then I had like, you know, volumes and volumes of Bologna to read. Right. Um, but it also blocked me as a writer for the first time. Like I, I get writer's block, but nothing has ever specifically just said, Hey, you can't write anymore. And that book did. It was like, <laughs> um, yeah. 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 That makes sense. But That's a pretty great book. Well, I, I didn't mean to take us off on, too far of a tangent there but i, I find that, that interesting when sometimes fiction writers use that device of a photograph right where uh uh-huh. let's you don't want to say like what a character looks like per se but uh-huh. you can like have them either like look in the mirror or like look at a photograph of themselves and describe the photograph it's sort of a, a kind of a way to get around that i actually think it's uh-huh. super interesting in older books i'll see this with like detective novels where you know the guy would like first scene like wake up and look in the mirror and describe his face and it's like uh, <laughs> something really like noir about it but it's like kind of a cheat for the writer to just describe the guy sure. <laughs> right. without him like just being exposition you know yeah, um, yeah. super interesting book Christian I feel like we've still only scratched the surface of this like mm-hmm. I love the Pete Maynard the Pierre Menard uh reference uh the stuff in there that's from borges um uh-huh. i don't know if that fits into disney world somewhere <laughs> it's kind of a simulacrum <laughs> itself i guess of moby dick um uh-huh. the the quixote we have mentioned don quixote today so that's good um uh-huh. i actually felt like i had a Knausgaard question for you and i've totally scrubbed it because i was like i don't want to ask about other writers and now i'm like fuck i should have wrote that down because <laughs> uh, you brought it up um, to um, to give re- our listeners a bit more of a sense of of your prose and and your stories, Christian, would you want to read uh, a section for us on air? Sure. You got something picked out? Um, yeah, I was cool. gonna I was gonna read like a a little bit. You you read actually one of the sentences, but oh, did I? I'll read the whole. It's like a, just a two paragraphs. I'll read that. Cool. Look into your own heart. You do what you were told. You went to college, graduate school, wrote and published a couple of books no one will ever read, and they give you a fancy professorship, a job for life. That's mediocrity, Tabordo. It's just the old version of mediocrity. Peter, James, and John took the leap into the information age, and they landed on couches in my basement. They didn't get what they were told, and they didn't get what they were told they'd get. That's the new mediocrity. And you and your friends, you pretended, maybe actually thought you were outside the whole thing, but you were practically the advertising campaign for it. Every time you wrote about someone who did what they were told, you depicted them as pathetic, miserable, quiet desperation or loud, alcoholism, bad sex, terrific, fat cats in the cradle. 
You printed the license for the world to treat them as congenitally pathetic and miserable. If there's a real John Galt, he isn't hiding out in some isolated valley. He's in New York, London, San Francisco. He's your sometimes Chicago neighbor, and you and your, friend, you and your friends are his fucking handmaidens. He's crushing Peter and his friends to make room for condos no one will ever live in, and when he runs out of space, he'll steal the blood of your children and mainline it to make him immortal. <laughs> Damn. So good. That's that's powerful, man. I love that. Um, I had a I had a section picked out too. It's a little bit longer, if that's okay. Yeah, um, yeah. This is from a, a story in Ghost Engine called Bear Country, and the context is it's uh, a father describing his feelings towards his child, but then he kind of um gets like really into practical joking, <laughs> so that's sort of the, the context here. There's no feeling better than the one you get walking through your front door and stopping in the vestibule, seeing the outline of your toddler son through the frosted glass of the door to the living room and knowing he is there waiting for you. There's nothing more powerful than the moment you inch open that frosted door and, after hanging up your coat and sliding off your shoes, peek through as your boy's eyes brighten with tears of happiness, as his mouth spreads into a goofy, gap-toothed smile, and he starts to clap his hands to applaud for you for the very fact that you have arrived home at the same time you always do. There is no warmer sensation than that of lifting his little body and holding him to your chest when he raises his stubby arms to you, fingers outstretched and wriggling. There is no greater joy than to feel his hot breath on your cheek, his bird-like pulse between his temple and yours. Or so I used to think. It is so much more powerful to step through the front door and see him through the frosted glass, standing there waiting. But instead of cracking the door as soon as you've hung up your coat to unpack the box from the costume store as carefully and quietly as possible, to slide the costume over your department store suit while your son tries to figure out what's going on on the other side of the glass, to pull the massive, surprisingly realistic grizzly bear's head over your own as your son begins to back away, and realizing that the paws of your costume will make it impossible to turn the knob, and that to remove your paw turn the knob and replace it will ruin the effect, to crash through the frosted glass with a roar you didn't know you were capable of as your son runs screaming through the house, hitting his pale, smooth head with his tiny, impossibly soft fists and running into furniture, fixtures, walls, until he finds his mother's arms, though the screaming does not cease for a long time after. (laughs) And then the next section goes on to describe... Uh, other practical jokes that the father will go on to uh, to wreak havoc on his son throughout the rest of his life, <laughs> and that part just like cracked me up so hard. <laughs> I loved it. Nice. <laughs> among yeah. among many others, like my notes have have many ha ha has uh, <laughs> after them in the inscriptions, uh, particularly one from Who's Bridemaid, uh, and this is for any any kid who grew up knowing about like Christian metal bands. Uh, quote, even Striper once publicly accused bridesmaids of being kind of gay. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Like, that just cracked me up so much. Uh, I'd imagine there there are quite a few autobiographical elements in Who's Bridesmaid after what you just retold us about The Cure. You know, (laughs) there, um, I mean, actually, there's, I, you know, there was a there was an ambient like culture war within the church where it was mm-hmm. like, do you only listen to Christian rock? Totally. Do you listen to non-Christian rock, or do you believe all rock music is satanic? Mm-hmm. But um, the rest of that is actually like entirely fabricated. I, you know, I I don't oh, know yeah. if you followed the 
Um, obviously, you can't follow a link on paper, but like if you put that link at the I bottom did of the actually. page, like, I, I did actually try. recorded it. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it was, you know, it's part, it's definitely like an ambient part of my childhood. Like I was, we didn't have the satanic panic or anything in my house, but it, but like <laughs> we saw those movies about how rock and roll was satanic and stuff. Uh-huh. It was, it was how so they sold their souls rock from roll, rock and roll. You know? Yeah. Backward, this is backward the... masking. You're like, we got to try that. Yeah. Right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Try I got a four track. The first thing I did was do back. Got to try that. You'll summon Satan. First thing. <laughs> <laughs> this was the link artistically declined press.bandcamp.com. Is that the one you're referring to? Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. It took me to Ryan W. Bradley's mile zero poems. Is that where it oh, takes man, you? Oh man, it must have they must have changed since because I checked it just before we published. It much has changed. Oh okay. Um, but yeah, it was like a I, like he that artistically declined was the publisher of the journal that initially published the story. Uh, oh, man, okay. I have to put that back up there somewhere. I may have mistyped a letter or something. Hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, is it not Ryan Bradley? I'm sorry. I was uh, Ryan Bradley was the he's a he's a great fiction writer but he ran a journal called sententia um with his press Uh, called artistically declined years ago hmm. and that's where i published the story initially oh Uh, cool the 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 song is there though the angel behind the rainbow it's there like you scroll down dave and it's on the right it's there oh okay oh nice um and it says by christian tabordo it's pretty cool That's awesome. A companion piece to Whose Bridesmaid? Twenty ten. It's actually amazing that that link still does work because it's like almost ten years right, old. Right. Right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, this has been really great. I feel like you know we have it a has. lot in common. I actually have a lot to say about like the way that music was presented in Christian <laughs> churches in the. <laughs> deep piney woods of east texas and oh my gosh you can't even imagine evangelical (laughs) churches you could imagine and like one time we did have like a guest preacher this old man like come in and his whole sermon was about the evils of rock and roll and uh Uh and afterwards we're like should we go should we go just like debate this guy afterwards (laughs) and i totally did and it was it ended horribly like you know you're not gonna (laughs) What am I going to, oh, some really? teenager, I'm going to debate this guy? Like, are you joking me? Like, for one, it's like, you don't even talk to him. Um, but that's, you're trying to install I, the I, virtues of, like, Nirvana to him or something? Uh, just whatever you're going to say is a fail. Like, but uh, the, the whole, oh, yeah. yes, like, Striper reference and, like, uh, uh-huh. Christian rock band, very close to my heart. So um, <laughs> I felt, you know, I could ID with a lot of stuff in the book. ID, and, yeah. I deal with it, um, but overall, it was it's very like pleasurable reading. It did remind me of like reading some, you know, stuff from Wallace back in the old days. Like you know, what he I felt like he was doing stuff that was cutting edge for a while, especially with pop culture, um, mm-hmm. and and sort of other personalities and other writers have done this too. So like, it's not like I'm trying to just relate you to one guy. I think your shit is really original. It's really good. And I really absolutely mainly just like what we were talking earlier about, like Watt and Frag and like these painters in pursuit of pleasure. Like I sort of saw myself as a reader of just like, why am I reading this? Like I'm in I'm pursuit of like aesthetic pleasure in some way. And like uh-huh. you've definitely provided it. Um, uh, yeah. Big time. So I, I <laughs> guess this I is the point that. I will ask you if you have any any um, final thoughts for us, if there's anything that we uh, you wanted to mention yeah. that we have not gotten to. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, 
No, I really, just so you know, if, if we ever talk again, I love talking about other writers. I understand, <laughs> I understand where your, uh, your fan comes from, yeah, but yeah. talking about other writers is way more fun for me. <laughs> sure, sure. Than talking about yourself. Sure. And I mean, I think it's yeah. a sign of reader, right? Like if you're a reader, that's what you, you read other stuff and you want to talk about it. And mm-hmm. that's, that's kind of like where our Wallace stuff comes from is like when a common yeah. thing when people first read Infinite Jest is like, man, I got to talk to somebody about this. Um, yeah. Um, so I, I agree with that instinct, but I'm just trying to give advice to her. anyone who might listen to this. Like, oh. don't follow my, I'm a professional. <laughs> totally. Don't I, try yeah. this at all. Uh, <laughs> you know, I've, I've, I've done like email interviews for years and stuff like that. Yeah. But before I got my academic job, I had never done like a public Q and a, and like, uh, like in fact, me and this, uh, Chicago writer, Lindsay Hunter, um, who's just an incredible, she's a great writer and an incredible performer, you know? Hmm. Um, and we did like this Northeastern tour and like we could be in and out of a place in 20 minutes. You know what I mean? It was like, <laughs> we would do our reading, you know, we would always, you know, we'd hang out with people and go to a bar or something like that, but we never did Q and A's. And like one of the write-ups like in Boston was like, they didn't even stick around for a Q and A. And I was like, by the time I finally did my first Q and A, I was already a professor. Uh-huh. And like, I went on for about 45 minutes and I was like, I'm, like, am I boring you? Like I'm boring myself. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. What, uh, what Matt said about the aesthetic pleasure of reading your work also makes me think of your books as beautiful objects and the art on the covers. Um, uh-huh. I think Tuflahoma maybe has my favorite like cover illustration of any book I can think of. Mm-hmm. Um, the convalescent by Jessica Anthony is very up there as well. Oh uh, yeah. Yeah. That was a good one. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've been Jacob incredibly McGraw, lucky with, with designers. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It was, uh, uh, with ghost engine when the editors emailed me, uh, I was like, I have no visual sensibility. Please don't put a ghost engine on the cover. <laughs> um, and then they sent me, this was the only thing they sent me as an option. And I was like, perfect. Yeah. Um, and then with tough Lahoma, um, they have a really talented designer named CV Perez there. Mm-hmm. And, uh, he, he emailed me being like, I'm, I'm always willing to, to listen. Um, and all I did was I sent him, you know, the, uh, Hobbes's Leviathan. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. The, the work of political philosophy. There's yeah. this amazing oh, yeah. frontispiece of the, oh, I know, you know I know the, it. Yeah. Yeah. I know it. Yeah. So it's just a woodcut and it's just this amazing little work of art. And I was like, I know you're not going to recreate this, but this is what I was thinking of visually the whole time I wrote the book. Mm. And he came up with the cover, which to me is an incredible uh, uh, interpretation of that woodcut. You know, so. mm-hmm. this reminds yeah, me, that's my Knausgaard question. This is where it comes from is the heart, <laughs> right? The heart on the front of it. And I was like, this is the ghost engine. Um, and, you know, I asked you, I was like, is it creating life? Is it generating afterlife is it generating souls and it reminds me of a line from Knausgaard that I really stuck with me where he's just in very stark terms describing human life and I think the first sentence he wrote and maybe it's in one of those like spring summer fall books but it's like the job of the heart is to start beating and one day it will stop or something like, that. like, like the heart's job is like a heart as a thing. It just like beats and beats and beats. And then one day it stops and that's it. And like, I felt like, you know, that bringing back to life, like the symbolism of the heart and in the engine, uh, all of that, that's what it made me think of. And I, I did really like, I'm glad that that's on the cover actually. Nice. Yeah, it's yeah, good. It's a good visual representation. Um, 
Dave, how are, how are we doing on time? You ever see the old Letterman shows? He's always like, Paul, how are we doing on time? <laughs> it's, like, it's always right on time. Um, we're, way, <laughs> we're about an hour and a, hour and a half. Over. I told you to go <laughs> yeah. by quick, though, Christian, I promise. Hopefully it's not been yeah. total torture for you. It's been great, man. Um, <laughs> um, awesome. <laughs> Christian, if people want to is... get in touch with you or, or find uh, more places to check out your work, uh, where, where are some good places for them to do that? And we'll link all these in the show notes. Uh, well, there's, you know, the, the usual, I, if you're, if you're going for books, I, I really like this new place, bookshop.org. Mm. Um, but, uh, my most recent stuff that's widely available and immediately available is the first story from, uh, ghost engine, uh, the star thrower thrower is mm-hmm. available on the website of always crashing, which is a, uh, a literary journal that's both print and online that I, uh, absolutely vouch for. It's just an awesome journal. Excellent. And then, uh, I had uh, the How We Live on Main Street was on Volume One Brooklyn. I saw that, yeah. yeah. That's um, the. I think those are the most yeah. recent. I've 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 been working on the forthcoming novel and then finishing up another novel. So that's what I haven't been publishing little things lately. Cool, right on. And you're on Twitter. You have a a, a bit of a Twitter presence where you talk about yeah. Trump sometimes and and his bathroom views. I was going to ask you about that. What's that? <laughs> Uh, you made a tweet recently about, I think, Trump and his view on bathrooms. <laughs> and you kind of agree with that. And I, and I was like going to ask you, what is his view on bathrooms? I don't know. Well, if I've he, come... he, he was complaining about toilets, right? Uh-huh. And um, the thing is, is that I don't, I don't know how universal this is, but like there are like uh, uh, flush volume rules in Chicago. Okay. To where like, like we have to like, put extra water in the tank just to functionally use the toilet you know what i mean mm-hmm. um wow so I'm, I'm choosing to believe that he was actually advocating for me in that moment because it'd be <laughs> the only time he's ever done it you know <laughs> right yeah totally <laughs> that's a good way to put it awesome well we'll link to all that stuff uh on the show notes matt where can people find us online if they want to get in touch we are definitely on twitter at concavity show and we are uh, on Instagram at Concavity Show. Um, and I think, you know, you can email us, concavityshow at gmail.com. We do like it when people email us, so please do um, email us. We do. And I think that's it. I think we're on yeah. Facebook, but I don't ever update that. So. Yeah, we're on okay. Facebook. Yeah. Um, speaking of people email, emailing us, uh, shout out to a listener and patron, Robbie Sykes, who's from the area that I'm in, in New Zealand right now. He lives a couple hours away. And he messaged last month saying that after like the COVID lockdown, he's going to come to Dunedin to visit some friends. And do you want to hang out and get a beer or something? So we met this week on Thursday and went out for a couple drinks uh, and talked about Wallace and books and, uh, and and life and everything for like two or three hours. And it was fantastic. So a uh, huge shout out to him. That was super fun. I love getting to like actually meet people who listen to the show. Uh, it's like a very surreal disembodied experience. Yeah, it's cool. Yeah. And totally. Dave, do we have any, uh, give a shout out to our patrons? Yeah. Always, always a shout out to our patrons. No, no specifically new ones in the last month. Um, but I do want to say, and Matt and I talked about this, um, is that we want, we decided to donate this last month's, uh, Patreon money to the bail project specifically. Um, and the reason that this came 
came up specifically is another nerdy community that I'm a part of. And this goes back to that thing you said earlier, Christian, is that I play this game called Netrunner, which is a dystopian card game uh, about computer hacking. And uh, there was recently a Black Lives Matter tournament online for it in the community. And people who played in it would donate money. And the organization who was running it, uh, which is like sort of the fan organization, they are they were matching all contributions. So like doubling, and they've raised almost 8,000 pounds um, wow. for the bail project. So uh, we donated on behalf of, of the Patreon money of the last month to that. Um, so huge shout out to everyone involved. And thank you so much for your continued support. And we just wanted to, to kick back to some really important things that are happening, obviously, right now in the U.S. and, and globally. Um, as usual, too, we always want to thank Robin O'Neill for her art and Parquet Courts for their song Instant Disassembly. And Christian, thank you so much again for coming on. It has been a blast talking to you. Uh, we really awesome. hope that people are going to pick up Ghost Engine, uh, Tufflehoma, and your other work and, and read it with as much joy as we did. I oh, appreciate it. I had a great time. Catch me now as I sing Into darkness I thought to be extinct I'm Matt And that's the guy with the With the actual hair on his head is Dave Dave, can you fucking hear us? What's going on? Open up your ears, Dave. The fuck? He's out of his gourd.